please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. That's going to be on page 725. You're going to need a Bible too. This is not going to be up on the screen. Jesus the Christ is the ransom for all who trust Him. He bought our way out of an eternal jail sentence by paying the ransom price of a perfectly lived life. You could say Jesus is our get-out-of-jail-free card. Free for us, incredibly costly for Him. He proved He could jailbreak us forever when He rose from the dead, and He paved our way for following Him into heaven when He ascended to the throne. And He now sits at the right hand of the Father as we looked last week in Mark 12.36 until He puts all His enemies under His feet. Until that day when our ransom returns to gather all who are His to Himself, finally and forever separating His from all who are not His. And all a disciple has to do, a disciple of Jesus, is to point out some lovely architecture for Jesus to start to talk about it. That's exactly what happens as we read together in Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, oh, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings of the temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father deliver over his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to, get to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of his elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there is the Christ. Do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming with, in the clouds with great power and glory. Then He will send out the angels to gather His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would ask this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, mold us, shape us, form us, make us by the power and authority of your word, King Jesus. Use it to ready us for your return. We ask in your name. Please, amen. So this is obviously a massive chapter, uh, which requires a couple things from me. Firstly, I will cover our ransom's return over a couple weeks. Okay, This week, we're just going to focus broadly on God's character. And next week, we'll focus on our response to His character. All right, you likely saw a number of admonitions here from Jesus. Be on guard. Stay awake. Right? That is our response to his character during crisis. And so that will be next week. This week, his character. And it's also, it's such a massive chapter that it necessitates me simplifying our focus for this morning. Uh, I thought of this a lot like uh, one of those massive rock climbing walls, like the one I visited in Lake County, Illinois years ago. It was this massive rock climbing wall, pegs everywhere, these handles to hold on to. The guy could tell, I'm like, dude, I'm, I don't know where to begin on this thing. And he just whispers to me, use the yellow handles. <laughs> I said, what do, you, what do you mean the yellow handles? He said, if you use the yellow handles, that will, that's the easiest way up. It's the guide. My goal this morning is to give us some handles to grab onto, all right, through this massive chapter, to map out the many signs and statements that Jesus gives as handles to guide us into what he is asserting about the trustworthy character of the Father during crisis. We need something to hold on to when crisis comes of the sort that Jesus is describing. That's my goal, to help give us a few handles that we can hold on to, okay? But I also need to ask you a favor. 
as we get into a topic like this. Because you likely come at this passage and this topic from one of two camps. There will be some of you this morning, you're kind of getting excited. You're kind of getting excited because you are uh, curious, deeply curious about Jesus' second coming. You think about it, you wonder it, you sign up for Revelation Bible studies. You are like Peter, James, John, and Andrew. You want to get all the detail about the second coming of Jesus. When will He come? When will it be? How will we know? If you don't miss movies like Armageddon or 2012, you're pretty excited about the Left Behind redo coming out very soon, starring Nicolas Cage. Of course, it's starring Nicolas Cage. What is he not in, right? When a world leader with questionable motives rises to power, you'll kind of whisper to anyone who listens, hey, you think he's the, you know, think he's the Antichrist, right? Is this the, is this the one? Is this the time? That's okay. When other natural disasters, wonders, generally cataclysmic events occur somewhere, like, you know, one of those blood moons. I found out this week there's actually going to be Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, another one of these blood moons, right, where the moon turns red. And their entire website's devoted to this. So you Google it, and you look at websites like this one above, all right, and you, and you start to read, hmm, interesting. You can click in the corner for a medal of salvation when Jesus comes to have and protect you for that cataclysmic event. I clicked it on it. It is 30, that's like 30 euro or 25 euro. All right? That's all you need to be safe when Jesus returns. All right? Just FYI. <laughs> and I will say this, though. Like, if that's you, your curiosity, though, is helpful because you believe what Jesus says here is true. It's designed to benefit us, and, and you possess an abiding confidence that He will come again. And that's a good thing. That's helpful. There's another camp, which I'm guessing most of us are in. You read a passage like this, and your basic takeaway is, hey, He's returning, we don't know when, so let's just get on with it. Alright? We know He's coming back. We understand there's some details. Let's just get on with it. An honest moment, you're glad what Jesus says here, but you wonder how helpful it'll be to spend time talking about it, analyzing it, getting into it. Your stance is helpful because you refuse to lose yourself in the minutiae of theories and predictions. You force the rest of us to ask, how does Jesus' words actually help us grow and change now? That's a fair question, right? I would just ask that each of you be patient with the other camp. Because understand, we do need to ask the question of timing. Do the statements and signs predicted by Jesus have to do with the generation of 1 AD? Or do they have to do with His second coming? When is Jesus referring to the statements in which He is making? Right, The, the signs, the predictions. And then we do need to move on how Jesus' words will help us further trust God, His character, especially during extreme crisis. So first, our first sort of big topic here, Jesus' signs and statements. Are they referring to the past? This generation, as he puts it, of 1 AD, or the future? His future return. On the one hand, he says to four people here, four of his disciples, make sure that no one leads you astray. 
Right? He says to you, truly I say, this generation will not pass away, doesn't he? This generation. He's not trying to be clever in his words. He's not trying to say, oh, the whole human race, as some people try to say. He means people you guys know, like families and kids you know. The same temple structure he walks out of. In verse 1, he predicts its destruction. And it is, in fact, destroyed. This temple, this very temple, is destroyed in this generation, 70 A.D. So about approximately 40, 37 years, somewhere in that range from the time he predicts it. It is destroyed, never again to be rebuilt. On the other hand, there's this section in verses 24 through 27 where we hear about stars falling, powers in the heavens shaking. They will, they will see, meaning everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And some people try to say, well, that represents political powers of the time of the first century. And this you know, represents stars, represents other kind of principalities. And Jesus means Him clearly coming again for everybody to see in a very obvious way. So you can't say, well, that's already happened. So, in answer to the question, is Jesus referring to the first century? Is he referring to the far future? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. It's both. And in, and in saying both, Jesus is actually following, we need to learn this, he's following a long line of Old Testament prophets as a way of warning those who are not in good standing with God and encourage the humble, the meek, the trusting in God who were. God spoke through the prophets frequently. You see it over and over about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. That day is coming in those days. So if you read the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Joel, on and on, you will see the day is coming. Each time the prophet says in that day or the day is coming, he's always referring to at least Two actual times in history, if not more. Two or more reference periods of time. I'm going to try to explain this as simply as possible. God does not count time like we do. He says this in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.8, which is actually in the context of Jesus' second coming. We hear a prophet say, okay, a day is coming, and we're thinking, whoa, okay, big day, circle the calendar, I'm looking linearly straight at a day, okay? It happens to be clip art that says this week. <laughs> All right, I, I kind of fear preaching this sermon this week. It's like, how to apply it to life? Okay, Jesus. We think of a day being a certain date on a certain calendar linearly. Jesus, God says day, and he's already thought eerily similar events on recurring days. He sees through time, through history, like that, okay? You see the arrow going through three different calendars. That means he has said a day, but he's already thought about like three periods of time because he's God. We're a man. He does his best to communicate to us. It does an amazing job. There comes a point where we're like, wow, when God says the day of the Lord is coming, he means like we're going to get a hint of a day, we're making another hint of a day, and then there's going to be that day. Does that make sense? A good example, I'm going to try to break this down for us here, is the prophet Joel. He describes a near future day of the Lord, okay? 
when he writes back in about the 5th century, 6th century, after the Babylonian exile, he, he writes about the near future day of the Lord in terms of an army of locusts that are going to come, a military invasion that's going to come from the north that will seem like locusts everywhere. Okay, And so he's addressing drunkards, dishonest farmers, and religious leaders and saying, hey guys, wake up. Here comes an army. Turn to God. Even now, he says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, Joel says. And he concludes, who knows, he may still turn. God may still turn, relent, and leave behind a blessing. You may have heard these words before. He's trying to warn that generation, change now, because there's a hint, there's a many day of the Lord coming your way. But in the same breath, the same prophet also describes a far future day of the Lord. He calls it the same day. The sun shall be turned to darkness, he says. All right? That's referring to the time of the cross. Do you remember when Jesus dies? And the whole landscape turns to dark. The moon to blood. Before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Apostle Paul uses this statement actually to refer to the time surrounding Jesus and the advent of the Holy Spirit where you can know God personally. You can call on Him and He will answer you. He will give you the Holy Spirit as a gift coming into your heart so you might know Him forever. It's awesome, right? Okay. Then he says, also same day, I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That sounds bad, right? (laughs) It is. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. That's referring to the second coming. Right? I'm going to gather all the nations. There will be a time of judgment. Judgment towards those who don't trust me. Restoration for God's people who have endured hardship from those who don't trust me. See? Okay. Same day, but God has like all these references in time. Joel is saying there's a near future day of magnified judgment and salvation, but there's also this far future day of judgment of salvation. As you begin to get that, all right, just get that picture even in your head. That Old Testament prophetic pattern. Jesus' own day of the Lord details begin to make sense. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, in some senses the final prophet. The final prophet who can say, thus saith the Lord, definitively. Because Jesus is referring to a near future, little r, already fulfilled day of the Lord. Little return in 70 A.D. And the ten years leading up to this time when God is doing all this stuff around the destruction of the temple. And so there's all these false Christs, prophets, and pretenders, you see that in verse 6 and 22, that were actually arrested on a daily basis during the days of the reign of Nero. And you hear about this historically. There are military uprisings everywhere during this period. Between, again, about 55, 60 to 70 A.D., Recorded earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Rome, four other large metropolitan cities. The cities of Laodicea and Colossae are devastated by an earthquake in 60 AD. Just total, their city is ruined. What do we read about here? Earthquakes, right? The book of Acts records the church at Antioch gathering funds across the Christian landscape to help with a famine in Jerusalem to help the, the, the church of Jerusalem. Do you remember this in Acts? Evidence there, but certainly elsewhere outside of the Bible. 
There's this huge famine that sweeps the land during this time. We read about a famine here, don't we, that Jesus predicts. Acts records Jesus' followers being beaten in synagogues and brought before governors and kings. You might think of the Festus and King Agrippa, governors and kings that Paul has brought before to testify about Jesus. And Agrippa's famous statement, you know, do you think that even now you're going to make me a Christian? Paul says, oh, yes. I wish you were like me except for these chains. The abomination of desolation, standing where not ought to be. What is that? We know it's bad. (laughs) I think this absolutely refers to Titus and the armies of Rome. See, while Jerusalem was burning, Emperor Vespasian's son, Titus, and his troops brought their sort of uh, legionary standards, their big flags, into the temple and offered pagan sacrifices where the sacrifices of God were to be made, where worship of Yahweh took place. The sign of the emperor, the sign of the victor, Titus, and sacrifices given unto him. The abomination in God's holy place, and then they burn it to the ground. This actually happens in, t- in history. All, in other words, all the details are there for the first century A.D. except the stars falling, sky shaking, the Son of Man being seen in the clouds with great power and glory. So in the first century A.D., he little r returns. Does that make sense? Okay. But there's also, with these grander statements, stars falling, powers, planets shaking, the Son of Man clearly coming, it's clear that he will big R return as well. I believe the specific details in Mark 13 refer to the events leading up to and the actual temple destruction back in the day. All right? Well, but they also generally anticipate the tribulations and divine intervention that will lead up to Jesus' return. In other words, if that's true, it means we don't need to closely inspect the details of each little sign or crisis thinking, oh man, this is it. Look, if you look here and you look at this detail and you look at this detail and you put it all together, it's clear from Revelation 12 and the seals of the trumpets and the marks of the beast and the... No. More generally speaking, there will be ramped up persecution, increases of crises like war, natural disasters, and more people looking to consolidate power by saying they have all the answers. By saying, look to me for the right things to say, the right way to rule, and the right way to bring people together. Because that is Christ, right? Perfect rule, perfect way of bringing people together, reconciliation, and perfect words. That's what it means to be a Christ. And that's what people are going to say. Look to me. I can do those things. So we don't need to live in worry or fear or anxiety about either the little R returns or the big R return, what's commonly known as the end of the world. Why? Because Jesus' details of little R returns and his big R return help us trust the character of God during crisis. What's so great about this passage, we, we, we often look at the details, but you can see four just themes woven in the details of Mark 13, like handles to help us get to seeing and further trusting the character of our Father, His goodness, 
his care, his love for us during the most extreme crises. Okay? So firstly, we see, we're going to see that God has a purpose. We're going to see that God has a plan. We're going to see that God gives guidance. And we're finally going to see that God will restore so we don't have to go through all this again. First of all, God has a purpose during a crisis. Why did God purpose to have this temple destroyed? All right? Now, we don't live back then, but could you imagine the place you worshipped, the place you loved, you grew up wanting to see one day, like these apostles who were like, Jesus, look at these great buildings. Look how amazing the structure is. Maybe some of them had never before made the pilgrimage to the temple. Here they are. They see it. We love this place. Destroyed. Why? Well, God's people, like the disciple and all of it, in verse 1, had long ago begin, begun to assign undue strength to the temple. They began to look for, to help from the temple. You may recall when King David proposed to build a temple many moons ago, his proposal was accepted, but not without a hint of warning. Do you remember this in the Old Testament? God says, would you build me a house to dwell in? Would you build me the I am a house to dwell in? As if I could be confined to your box? He gets that little moment, this little hint. Then he agrees to the building. And that's exactly what happens. People begin to confine God to a box, a building, to the temple. That's, they look to the temple and say, that, that's where our strength lies. That's what makes us different as a people. Other people have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They have big cities. They have wealth. We have this temple such that the gift becomes their God. See? Jesus has already shown his disciples in Mark 11 that religious ritual of temple worship can neither please God nor change people. But that doesn't stop so many from trusting themselves to the temple to help them. Some people didn't get it still, and they wouldn't. In fact, it's interesting, the reason the Romans got involved, invaded Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple was to quell a Jewish civil war. A Jewish religious civil war over what? Guess what? Who had claim to the temple? Who had claim to lead its worship? Who had claim to run it. You see this in the four or five years leading up to the destruction of the temple. It just gets worse and worse. All these sects fighting each other over the temple. They wanted it as their strength. That's why we read in verse 12. Look at this. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against parents because there's this civil war going on. So Jesus returns to the very gates to strip them lest they remain deceived. This can't save you. External religious worship, it can't change you. Don't be deceived. Consider our lives today, though, too. How many of you assign undue strength to your skills, to your resume, to your career, to your bank account, to your performance as a Christian, or at least being a pretty good person? How many of us assign strength to our history, our past, what we've accomplished, maybe to our health? I'll be fine, always have been, to your experience, maybe to your nationality, 
your ability to accomplish anything you've ever put your mind to or will towards. If and when Jesus returns into our history and strips us of gifts not named God, as he stripped them of the temple, his purpose for us will be in part to relocate, do strength in him, to put our trust, to put our hope, to put our strength back in him, not towards these things we're just used to, that we think is normal. We think, oh, these things will help me. These things will save me. So we see that God has a purpose in crisis when he takes things away from us. We begin to trust in them. God has also, we see, secondly, planned this crisis. He is in control even when it appears like others have seized it. Look in this passage here. Consider the crisis surrounding 70 A.D. and the temple's destruction. People in power seem to have seized control over the destiny of God's people. Nations and kingdoms, verse 8. Councils, religious authorities, governors, kings, verse 9. Strong-arming family members, verse 12. The abomination of desolation, which sounds incredibly hopeless, Verse 14, false Christ and prophets performing signs and wonders. Verse 22, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? It appears like people have taken control. Consider the power that they will wield. They'll attempt to lead many astray. Verse 6 and 22, they'll rise and they'll fight with all their might and with all their training. Verse 8, They'll deliver you over to harm. Verses 9 and 10 and 12. They will hate you. Verse 13. So there's all these people who've appeared to seize control. They have great power. But we also read that God is in control of His good plan. Verse 23. Look there. He has told us beforehand all of this will happen. He delivers us over to harm, but so that we will get to bear witness to Jesus. Verse 9. And spread the Gospel. Verse 10. What a privilege to share it even with people who would never give it a hearing otherwise. Governors, kings, those in power. He gives you the Holy Spirit and the promise He will speak through you. Verse 11. He will shorten the crisis because He loves you. Verse 20. And that actually happened, by the way. He shortens this crisis. Inexplicably, there's this there's this um, commander named uh, Cestius who withdraws inexplicably from attacking God's people. And all these historians don't know why. We know why. Jesus predicts it. He's in control. He has a good plan. Which begs the question, by the way, if this happened back then, can there be little r returns of Jesus into our history today? Times when he intervenes with great power and unusual strength into our history to get our attention? And the answer is, I believe, yes. It's a continuation of this prophetic pattern. The day of the Lord with multiple reference, multiple periods in time. 70 AD, perhaps sometime in the present, recent past, far past, but also the day He will finally return. What we don't know is when He is doing this. And this is really important. We don't know when he is doing this. Some people with great 
bombast, and unfortunately with great injury, has confidently asserted societal crises such as 9-11 for Americans, the 7-7 bombings for Britons, Hurricane Ivan for Kamanians, among others, were a crisis of divine judgment. Some people have said this. I've heard from God. This is a judgment of Him upon this society. This is Him intervening into history and saying, you've lived wrongly. Now, no one can definitively say that. The last time we know that is the temple destruction. We, can, we can't say definitively that these things are, but neither can we just say definitively that they are not. To be fair, in Luke 13, some people approach Jesus asking about a special judgment towards those who are assassinated by a Roman governor and also about a tower that fell over and killed 18 people. In both cases, Jesus spends little breath on God's intervening judgment towards specific sin, but he does say, in effect, wake up and turn to a Savior because death likewise is in your future. And it will last forever if you don't seek the help you need to escape it. In other words, he's saying, you want to know if, I've, if this is God's intervening in history. To, look, most importantly, wake up. Turn. Look for help from God. Look for a Savior. Now, I know this might offend some of you that crisis is part of God's plan. But consider the alternative. That the crises today lie outside of God's control. That His hands are tied. Sure, He's powerful and sovereign, just not over the worst people, the worst of nature, the worst evils, including Satan himself. Do you want a God who is in control over the so-called good things only? A God who is in control only over bunny rabbits and births and birthdays, the nice things of life that we can thank Him for? If so, I suggest that we are still young in catastrophe and crises. When assurance of His providence is most valuable, assurance that He has a plan is most to be sought, assurance that terrible, ferocious circumstances still fall under the plan of God who proved His goodness on the crisis of His Roman cross. Such assurance is more valuable than even the vaccine, the fresh water touching lips, the news that a loved one is safe, has been protected from the crisis. We need more than anything assurance that He is still Lord of the storm. He has a plan with this crisis. Thirdly, God gives guidance to endure the crisis. He tells everyone back in the day, 70 AD, who want to play the hero or martyr to flee. This is not the time to die for your faith, he's saying here in Mark 13. Run to the hills. There will be another time. But you're going to need to be my witness. You're going to need to stand for me. Pray for pregnant women. Pray for the society's most vulnerable who have to suddenly evacuate. We will be pregnant, laboring women, right? Clearly, Jesus is not familiar with many of the women in Cayman who do yoga Right, Pilates and CrossFit until like month nine of their pregnancy. All right, they'd be fine. <laughs> Hence, at a practical escape, Jesus does for those on rooftops where many a Jewish family would go and lounge to feel the cool summer breezes. They would sleep up there. 
Jewish houses in a walled city were usually these flat roof structures that would form this continuous terrace all the way to the city walls, which would form, if you will, an elevated highway for people to escape. And there's evidence that that's how people escaped the 70 AD burning of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. Awesome. Jesus gave Christians of that time a plan. He gave them guidance so their lives might be saved. Our Father, likewise, will give guidance in the worst of times, just as he did with the owner of a flower shop in the Merco Center, wondering if Ivan, because of Ivan, Hurricane Ivan, that if she and her employees should really just shut down shop, stop working to renovate, and give up and go home. Is this really worth it in the midst of this disaster? And then God gave guidance. He sent a man who simply asked for a dozen bouquets of balloons. Having prayed, she realized this is God's guidance. That people are going to celebrate again. That this too shall pass and I can move on. God will give similar guidance in crises when we need it. Fourthly, God restores everything back to its rightful place. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All that we hold worthy of all, fixed, unchangeable, will lose its strength. The stars which, by which people for centuries have navigated their way in life, and they still do, all of these natural Wonders will lose their strength in view of the Son of Man and His return. Stars and planets can't even stay on the same landscape as the God-man of Jesus. The sun and moon will bow down by dimming their lights as the light of the world comes down into history finally. Isn't that amazing? The sun and the moon will just go, that will happen. There will be emanating from the Son of Man as He comes only power and glory, but also one more thing. Verse 27. Gathering. Everything we otherwise hold amazing and awesome dims, disappears, and dies except for His. Friends, I don't want you to dim, disappear, and die without being His. The one thing He will gather to Himself when Jesus returns finally are His. Those who've trusted in Him for life and for salvation. One day you will be gathered to either exult, dance, dine in his glory, or you'll die out and disappear because of it. I want to leave you with this one word this morning. One word this morning, because frankly, you might forget everything else I say when crisis comes. Hopefully you'll look to Mark 13. But maybe you just remember this one word, magnify. Or you'll just remember that little dopey magnifying glass up there. When Jesus returns in our history, whether temporarily through widespread crisis or permanently near the time of his arrival through the clouds, everything gets magnified. Think of it. There will always be trials. We always will have trials and conflicts, suffering. but They're magnified during a crisis, right? There will always be persecution for loving Jesus and telling others about Jesus. But it's going to be magnified during crisis. But you who trust Jesus need not fear nor tremble because the goodness of God will be magnified 
There are always opportunities to witness, but there will be a reliance on his spirit, an urgency to share the gospel that will be magnified, a spread of the gospel like we've never seen before. That is good. Christ is magnified, the goodness of God magnified further. He is with us always. But when he comes to be with us in his return, his presence will be magnified, felt like never before. His judgment always rests on those who don't trust him. His grace is always available as a free gift for escape. How much more so during widespread crisis do people reassess where they stand with God? Do they feel God's judgment when they know they're not right with him? Do they reach out and sense his goodness, his free gift of salvation during times of crises? You see, friends, big picture here. Jesus is saying, yes, upon my return, upon my intervening history, crisis will magnify, things will get harder, but I will show myself much stronger and much better and much more with you than you've ever felt before. Let's pray. God, we know this is in some ways a, a confusing subject. I hope this morning we have seen that when you talk about your return, you've had this amazing plan in all of history, especially back to the Old Testament prophets, where you would give people hints of warning, of reminders that you love them and you can, they can turn to you in history, of little hints that you will one day come and scrap away with this world and restore everything back to its rightful place. You did that when you spoke these words to Jesus when you were on earth. You were saying, look, there will be a concrete time in history where you'll see all these things come true so you can trust me that they'll come capital T true one day as well. Do not fear when you face crises of many kinds. Do not fear when they become under the microscope and magnified. You're saying, my goodness, my love, my power, my spread of the gospel will be magnified as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come again soon. Please come. Amen.